1 Corinthians 6. As we continue to make our way through Paul's letter these Lord's Day mornings, making our way verse by verse, paragraph by paragraph through 1 Corinthians, we'll pick up at verse 9 of 1 Corinthians 6. I tend to read uh, just a few verses. As a matter of fact, I intend for that to be the last of three readings, actually. I'll be reading first from Leviticus 18, and then from Romans 1. And then we'll come to our text this morning, Leviticus 18, Romans 1, and 1 Corinthians 6. If it seems to you that you've heard more about homosexuality in the last few years than in all the previous years of your life combined, you are probably right in a level unprecedented in our national life. This matter has been pressed upon our consciences our consciousness, rather, and our consciences. It should be both, shouldn't it? The church has not remained unaffected, nor should she, as I intend to point out to you in a moment. But what shall we think and what shall we do about this as Christians, as the church of Jesus Christ? Well, let's pray. Father, we need wisdom, and we need to live not according to our wits, not according to our poorer instincts, not according to our fallen nature, but according to who we are in Christ and according to your word. So we pray for the grace now to receive your word and receiving it to be molded and shaped more and more by it, that we may be today, later today, this week, in the days to come, more closely resembling Christ, more in His image than we are at this very moment. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. 1 Corinthians 6, uh, well, wait a minute, we'll begin with Leviticus 18. Verse 22 is where I am in Leviticus 18. You shall not lie with a male as with a woman. It is an abomination. The second passage is from Romans 1. Paul's description of the human predicament, our fallen condition in sin, in verses 26 and 27 of Romans chapter 1. Romans 1, 26, For this reason God gave them up to dishonorable passions. For their women exchanged natural relations for those that are contrary to nature. The men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another. Men committing shameless acts with men and receiving in themselves the due penalty for their error. Finally, we come to the verses to which we've come in this series of sermons in 1 Corinthians. He's been urging, Paul has been urging the church, urging Christians to live out their identity, essentially to be what they are in Christ, adding this argument beginning at verse 9 of 1 Corinthians 6. Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. 
and such were some of you. But you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. If you haven't caught it yet from me verbally, you've certainly deduced either from the bulletin or from the readings that uh, I've decided to address one specific sin out of this entire list this morning. Why? Well, we might profit certainly from examining each and every one of these individual sins here individually, having our hearts thoroughly searched by the Word of God, by the piercing light of His Word, and asking ourselves with the psalmist to see to ask God to see if there's any grievous way in us and to lead us in the way everlasting. There's sufficient reason, however, to call this one from the list for particular attention today. Homosexuality stands out in this list today because it's the only sin that our nation has recently bent over backwards to justify, even to defend as a fundamental right and is now culturally and more and more legally imposed on us as behavior that we must either condone, even approve of, and support, or else find ourselves on the wrong side of history with bigots and extremists, and even on the wrong side of the law. Indeed, as you know, the cause of homosexuality has been advanced even to the point that homosexual marriage has found its way into the law of the land with a single vote of our United States Supreme Court nearly a year ago in which the justices declared in a five-to-four sentence that the fundamental right to marry is guaranteed to same-sex couples in all 50 states under the U.S. Constitution. Now, this has come as something of a surprise to many Christians, but it should not have been. All of this is but the ripe fruit of the sexual revolution that began in the 60s and of the radical individualism that is shot through our culture. Join those two together, the throwing off of all sexual boundaries and restraints and mores as we've witnessed in the past five and a half decades, especially in our culture on the one hand, and the me emphasis on the other, me-centeredness, that is the current prevailing spirit, the ethic, really, the ethic of our nation that measures everything against my advantage, my advancement, my pleasure, with a good measure of paganism thrown in, mixed together in the cauldron of naturalistic evolutionism, the worldview that holds that human beings are little more than glorified pond scum and going nowhere when we die. This is what you have. The current social milieu. Unfettered, virtually limitless pursuit of personal pleasure for me down virtually any and every avenue, no matter how deviant from the commandments 
and even the design, the divine design of human beings by God. Make no mistake about this, homosexual acts are not only a violation of God's decrees of his law, but also a violation of his design, what Paul calls in Romans 1, nature. For their women exchanged natural relations for those that are contrary to nature, and the men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another. It's self-evident that God has made men and women very different and distinct from one another, complementary to one another in many, many wonderful ways. Our differences are not to be treated as if they were something to be regretted, but rather received and embraced wonderfully as God's gift to us. Diversity is God's intention, unity in diversity between man and woman is God's own stamp on mankind. This is clear not only in marriage, but is seen especially clearly in marriage. God has created man and woman for each other by design. And homosexual acts defy that design, and therefore the designer. So homosexual activity is fundamentally an act of rebellion. That's what it is. It's a rebellion against God. It's not only a throwing off of his law, but of the very way he has made us. It violates both God's decree and his design. Again, nothing surprising here. Mankind has been in rebellion against our maker since time immemorial. The 60s sexual revolution was not the beginning of sin. Since the Garden of Eden, we've sought to throw off God's authority to call good evil and evil good. And is that not exactly what is going on today? The homosexual lobby is, is seeking that all of us should not only call this evil good, but should celebrate it as a great good. The problem is that there are some in the church who are joining that celebration, even leading it. And they're not very far from what we would consider home in Christian circles. The question for us this morning, of course, is how we, the church, must think and live. What shall we believe and how shall we behave? Well, for one thing, the Bible plainly teaches that homosexual behavior is sin. That seems pretty, pretty elementary to you. I know a congregation made mostly up of conservative, reformed, evangelical believers like you, but there are a number, small though they are, but still a number of people in the Christian church who are looking desperately for an argument to justify loyalty to the Bible and affirmation of homosexual behavior. Evangelical pastors and writers, I mean. Tony Campalo, for example, a well-known evangelical popular speaker, announced last June that he had embraced the position that the church should support gay marriage. Writing, quote, it has taken countless hours of prayer, study, conversation, and emotional turmoil to bring me to the place where I am finally ready to call 
for full acceptance of Christian gay couples into the church. The subtext, of course, of his announcement is that he's wrestled long and hard with the church's refusal to countenance the homosexual way of life based on what the church took to be the explicit teaching of the Holy Scripture. But finally decided that we know better now. We know better today than the church has for these past 2,000, yea, for 4,000 years. You know that he isn't, and nor are those who agree with him going to come right out and say it, that I don't think the Bible can be trusted anymore to teach us about sex. They're simply adjusting and accommodating to the modern environment, confident that they, they're doing what is right. Even closer to home, listen to this odyssey of the City Church of San Francisco, founded in the later 1990s as a mission church of our own denomination, the Presbyterian Church in America, the PCA. That church is not yet 20 years old, and it was funded by hundreds of thousands of PCA dollars supplied by PCA churches. The intention of this church was to replicate the model of city focused ministry, such as we see at Redeemer Church in New York City. City Church's organizing pastor had been a successful RUF. Those of you in-house know what that stands for, Reformed University Fellowship Ministry of the PCA. The mission church grew and grew. It was organized, and after some years, attendance had reached a thousand, divided among several services conducted at several sites. In 2006, the church and its ministers left the PCA for the RCA, the Reformed Church in America, the Dutch denomination in which I grew up, but uh, which I left with a heavy heart 25 years ago because of its theologically liberal bent. I say this PCA church left the PCA to join the RCA so as to be free to ordain women to the eldership and to the ministry. People at City Church asked at the time whether the church had taken a first step down a slippery slope and explicitly asked whether this change portended a change in the church's position on homosexuality. They were assured that it did not. And yet just last year, the minister and the elders of the church announced that they would no longer, and this is their wording, discriminate based on sexual orientation, by which they meant that sexually active gay and lesbian couples and same-sex marriages could become church members in good standing. It's not clear, actually, from the things that have been said and done at the church whether there remains any requirement that unmarried gay and lesbian church members must remain chaste. Among the arguments made to the congregation to explain and to justify this change of position was that the Christian church's previous policy against sexually active gay members, or gays becoming members, has not here, their words again, has not led 
to human flourishing. The senior pastor also remarked, more and more LGBT Christians who were sons and daughters of the church were emerging. Lots of shame, lots of hurt. No doubt that conclusion was in some significant measure the result of personal relationships with gay men. The senior pastor's son, for example, is a homosexual. Now I convey that to you to impress upon all of us the fact that this, this is hitting close to home and will more and more in the days to come. And we must be ready to stand firmly on this basic teaching of Scripture that homosexual behavior, I choose that term carefully, homosexual behavior is sin. All homosexual behavior, I hasten to add, because one of the arguments being presented in the church today, an argument made just last year, as a matter of fact, by a visiting pastor at City Church, is that we've misread the Bible. We've simply misunderstood and misread the Bible. What the Bible condemns, according to that visiting pastor and those who agree with him, is that, is that not all homosexual behavior, only certain kinds God condemns. Homosexual rape, non-consensual, uncommitted homosexual behavior. These God calls sin, not monogamous, consensual, committed, married homosexuality. We've simply misunderstood such passages as the three that we read this morning. Yes, especially those three. What Paul was condemning was not homosexuality and its lifestyle per se, but only gay prostitution and exploitation, especially of boys, what's called pederasty, pederasty. Well, that argument is convincing. It's convincing to those who want to be convinced by it. But it's not one any serious biblical scholars. Men burning for one another in Romans 1, or women exchanging natural relations for that that are contrary to nature is not a way of speaking of exploitation or of prostitution. The two Greek words behind the English translation of our passage today in 1 Corinthians 6, translated men who practice homosexuality, simply mean literally, and I hope you'll pardon the graphic nature, the man who is active and the man who is passive in the homosexual act. What the Bible condemns is any sort of sexual relationship between men or any sort of sexual relationship between women. A second thing that the Bible teaches about homosexual behavior and homosexuals is that God is able to deliver people from this sin, and often does. And such, Paul writes to the Corinthians, and such were some of you. 
But you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. It is not only possible, God has actually washed away the sins of homosexuals, of gays and lesbians, sanctified homosexuals, that is, set them apart as holy and declared them to be righteous, that is, justified them in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. Homosexuals need not remain slaves to their desire, nor to the wrath of God that awaits all those who remain in their sin. In that sense, homosexual sin is, is really but one in a multitude of sins from which Christ regularly delivers people who trust in him. Indeed, if you did not notice, allow me to point out to you that homosexuals are but one, just one, and, and not even a particularly remarkable one of the kinds of sinners who, if they remain impenitent, will not enter the kingdom of God but who may be washed and sanctified and justified. We know that because those who are, those are precisely the kind of people who were entering the church in Corinth in the first century by the grace of God and who are entering the church in the 21st century by that same grace. They, along with formerly heterosexual heterosexually immoral people and idolaters and thieves and greedy people and drunkards and revilers and swindlers. There is no hierarchy in this list of sins. They're not listed in order of grossness. And even if they are, homosexual behavior is not particularly remarkable. It's somewhere in the middle in our text between idolatry and swindling. Here's the point. God delivers homosexuals the same way he delivers us. From our guilt immediately and from the hold and power of our sins over time. Brothers and sisters, we cannot, we must not think of homosexual sin as if it were somehow in another compartment from our own sin. Whatever that sin may be. This is the Scripture's verdict. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And all are invited to the banquet of eternal life through faith in Jesus Christ. Sin is sin. And salvation is salvation. Why should homosexual sin be any different from heterosexual sin in the sight of God? I tell you, it isn't. It is not. Both of those, along with all sin, sexual and otherwise, other kinds of sin, all of them 
our sin, your sin, my sin, sent Christ to his cross to pay for the price of our sin with death. I said something very similar to that several years ago when we were making our way through the book of Romans in a series of sermons from that book. And I remember how one man came up to me after that service, seething. I was simply wrong, he said. Homosexuality is a different sin from other sexual sin. It is worse in God's eyes. He was convinced much worse than heterosexual sins like fornication and adultery. He would not be convinced otherwise, and all attempts to change his mind on that topic caused him only to dig his deals all the more intractably deep. Well, I learned within a matter of weeks why he had to insist on this difference. And I think you can guess why. In fact, you have already. He himself was fornicating regularly with a woman at that time. And he simply could not, would not bear the thought that he was doing every bit as sinful as acts with her as homosexuals do with each other. You know, now that I've had time to think about this, it was really worse. It was really worse. I mean, his was the worst sin of the two. How so, you ask? Because he knew what was right. He knew the right. He had professed faith in Christ. He knew the law. He claimed to know God. I'm not saying he, he didn't or doesn't. But all of that light, the Bible says, only increases the guilt of those who enjoy that light over those who remain in the darkness of their ignorance apart from Christ. No wonder he had to insist that homosexual behavior was worse than his. He had to be able to say in his heart, well, at least I'm not as bad as they are. My brothers and sisters, dear flock, hear this. Homosexuals are not worse sinners than you. And you are not in and of yourselves better than they. Sin is sin. Did you mean that when you said a few minutes ago, and we all well said it, let's never let a word escape our tongues and our lips in this house, but that we mean them from our hearts. Did you mean it, I say, when you confessed that you have made an adulterer of yourself? When we all confessed that together a few minutes ago? And how can you possibly think yourself better than any other sinner? Now listen, if you, if you bristle against what I'm saying to you right now, then you've not truly come to grips with, to grasp the real depravity of your own heart. Of the treason, the high treason of your own sin. Blackness of it only, 
Only grace, only God's grace can melt that coldness, can knock down that pride that holds your heart in its icy grip. Remembering from last week's morning worship service, how we must all think of our, ourselves, every one of us, as the worst, the foremost of sinners. That is how we must think of ourselves. Everyone, heaven will be chock full of sexual sinners saved by grace. It will be your privilege and mine to be numbered in that company of the redeemed. Have you never struggled with the power of sinful desire in your own flesh? Even now that you are born again by the Spirit of God, have you not heard the call? Have you not felt the, the pull on your desires, not just to sexual, but to all sorts of different kinds of sins, to, to pride, to hatred, to covetousness? Then you know, don't you? You know that you should be of all people in the world the most sympathetic toward your homosexual neighbors and particularly toward your brothers and sisters who still struggle deeply with same-sex attraction. And you know that looking down your nose at any sinner, redeemed or not, is to betray the grace of God by which you yourself have been saved. Let us therefore drop our, right now, drop our overly simplistic mischaracterization of, of homosexual people, for they are people. They're created in God's image. I said, let's drop this overly simplistic mischaracterization of homosexuals and even transsexuals as simply straight people who chose one day to indulge a perversion. Let's remove that silliness from our thinking and from our vocabulary. No life, no life is that simple. No sin is that simple, and you know that. You know that from your own experience of sin. I'm not saying here there's some sort of gay gene or that people are born gay or any silliness like that. Please don't misconstrue what I am saying. But remember, remember that all manner of forces, beginning from our youth, conspire in our lives. All kinds of experiences in our fallen world play their sometimes devastatingly terrible parts in every human life. Sexual abuse, parental neglect, fatherly indifference, even pastoral and priestly abuses in many cases just to name a few. All the forces of the world, the flesh, and the devil conspire against every individual human being seeking through all manner of means to draw even the elect to hell, if that were possible. 
sin, all sin, all kinds of sin, are weeds with deep, complex root systems. And this is true particularly and especially of sexual sin and sends out its tendrils into every area of a person's life, into their thinking, into their relationships, into their world, into their work, into all of it. Ask a homosexual who has been born again. Please do this. Do this. I spent several hours this week with Rosaria Butterfield. Not personally. She, she read her own book to me this week. Please do that. May I ask you that? I'm not telling you this is a divine commandment, so this is separate this from the typical sermon material. This is not the voice of God per se, but the voice of man saying, May I recommend that every one of you buy Rosaria Butterfield's book and read it and find out just what is involved in the life of a homosexual person and the complex nature of what the Lord does, not instantly, but through wrestling and time and work of His Holy Spirit to bring such a person into His kingdom. And you'll begin to understand why I've said the things that I have for the second half of this sermon. Secrets of an um, Unlikely Convert. That's the name of the book. Now, I know, I know. The homosexual lobby has targeted Christians these days in our land, although one helpful thing Rosaria points out is that the church must never think itself a victim of the homosexual lobby. That, too, is a serious error on our part. But the truth is that Christians have been targeted by the homosexual lobby. And I think I can tell you this with confidence, there are harder days to come for us as Christians, judging from the course on which this nation is currently headed at breakneck speed, there are harder times to come for Christians on this point. But we must not. We must resist this temptation. We must not respond with hatred for hatred, evil for evil. Rather, we must return evil, not just with good, but with blessing. I hear Christians ask sometimes, when will Christians rise up and fight the homosexuals or fight the homosexual lobby? When we will take a stand and take America back or whatever malarkey Christians tend to say? Maybe we need to be reminded of something Augustine said to his church and of his church in this day, a day increasingly like our own. He said this, The world was won by suffering, not by fighting. Well, if, if I may attempt, dare to improve on St. Augustine, we might add that the world will be won by love, 
by the love of God that takes hands and feet in the form of Christians, humble Christians, who know and sense in their heart of hearts that they are sinners saved by grace and who are thrilled by that grace and therefore who desire hardly anything else more than that every creature made in God's image should enjoy that same grace of God by which we of all people have been saved, washed, sanctified, justified, and will do whatever it takes by way of hospitality, of friendship, of genuine interest in others, including our homosexual neighbors, to shine that light of the gospel into all the world. Amen.